we're looking at Revelation. This is our eighth uh, journey uh, through the, the uh, chapters, and we're looking at the church that was infected with the idolatry of distraction. Now remember what we're looking at. We're looking at Jesus assessing the second generation church. And I want to keep bringing this up every few classes, that, that Jesus came and ministered on earth uh, after 40 days after the resurrection, he was on the top of the Mount of Olives. He ascended up into heaven, blessing the disciples, sent them into all the world to preach the gospel. They did, even to the point of martyrdom. Uh, they wrote everything he asked them to write, and so they wrote the gospels, the epistles. Then the most well-known of the apostles, most of them get martyred, and Peter and John, uh, I mean, Peter and, and Paul are martyred. And the second generation church keeps going, but John, as Jesus said in John 21, if he tarry till I return, what's that to you, Peter? Jesus said John was going to be around for a long time, and he was. And so John is the last living apostle, and Jesus comes to visit him on Patmos. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. Jesus visiting John on Patmos after Jesus had swung through the seven churches. He visited all the churches, walked around unseen, looked into the hearts and minds, what they were thinking during the message, what they were thinking as they came to church, what they were doing when they left church. He analyzed all that, Jesus, God the Son, with those eyes and all that we saw. And he comes back to John and said, I want to give you the report, my medical report of these places. And he tells them where he went. He, he said, I did the loop. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and now I'm coming to you on Patmos. So Revelation, starting in chapter 3, verses 14 onward, tells us what the idolatry, what is an idol? An idol is something that pushes God out of the way, that, that takes God's place. That's what an idol is, something we put in place of God. And so many Christians have allowed the idol of distraction to push God out to the periphery. As a pastor for 38 years, the most frequent confessed struggle people told me about was, I just don't have time to read the Bible. I just don't have time to memorize the Bible. I just don't have time to share the gospel. Why? They were distracted. Okay, so let's, let's look at this. Starting in Revelation 3 and verse 14. Uh, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen. Remember the same, you can see this little pattern. The city name then Jesus' calling card, his introduction. Uh, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And then he starts the, the commendation, I know your works. And that's the only commendable. I mean, they were doing something. But then it goes downhill from that. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, as a dad, a father of eight children, I mean, we homeschooled, so I was around the kids a lot. 
I was a pastor, you know what I mean? They were involved in the church. I was around the kids a lot. Boy, do I know a lot about this word. Uh, vomit. Kids get sick. You know, they, they drink too much, eat too much, run, jump, you know, whatever, and do all this stuff, and they get all, and all of a sudden you can see it in their eyes. They, they're going like this. And normal vomit is just where you put your hands under their chin and they go, you know, and, and mom wipes their face and you carefully go to the sink, you know, and, and it's just a little, that's not this word. This is the word that, that in the parenting books they would call projectile vomiting. That's the bad one. You see them come and their eyes get big and they run and it goes, I mean, in slow motion, that would be a cool slow-mo shot, you know, watching it go and then, that's awful. I mean, it's kind of gross, makes you a little sick to see it, to smell it, to do it. Now look at this. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will projectile vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. You make me vomit, and not just a little one. Now let me ask you, is that positive at all? Is that anything? I mean, that is very negative. That is, that is gross. Jesus can feel a Christian makes him sick. Have you ever thought about this? This is a fascinating passage. Okay. So, Jesus keeps his word. This is the 49th thing I found about the, I found about seven for each of the churches. So, you can see the number there when I was doing my journal. Jesus is the amen. That means he agrees with God's truth. We already studied Hebrews 1.3. He is the exact representation of God. He's the faithful and true witness. He told us in verse 8 of chapter 1. We can trust him. He's the beginning, that means he's the author of the universe. Something we know from the Old Testament is it means he's watching over his word. Remember, Jesus says, I am the word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. That's Jesus. Jesus is the word. Do you know what Jeremiah 1.12 says? God the Father says, I am watching over my word to perform it. God the Father is watching over the revelation of his truth through Jesus Christ, which is the Bible that you're holding, and he is going to perform it. God, do you want to know what God the Father's doing? Jesus is busy. He's running around the church and he's visiting us and he's checking on us and coaching us. And the Holy Spirit is helping him empower us. What is God the Father doing all this time? He's, he's telling us in Jeremiah 1.12 that he is watching over the scriptures and making what the scriptures say happen. Wow. That means this morning at 5 a.m. when I didn't want to get out of bed, and I did get out of bed, and I got to this wonderful, beautiful, word of life rocking chair in our little cabin we have, and I pulled my Bible out. I was so excited to be interacting with the script of what God is doing in this universe. He is watching over this book, and he's going to perform it. And if we will calibrate and adjust and harmonize and, and get our lives in step 
That's what it means to be walking in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God. And the Word of God reveals Jesus Christ. And God the Father is watching over that revelation of His Son, Jesus Christ, that was breathed out through the Holy Spirit, and He's making it happen. And you know what the greatest thing to do in life is? To do what, well, what 2 Chronicles 16, 9 says? Or is it 1 Chronicles? Which one of you know? I think it's 1. No, it is 2. Okay, I'll quote it for you. I'll just tell you. 2 Chronicles 69. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong toward those whose heart is completely toward him. God the Father is looking for someone that will say, I want to do your will. You know how I know that? Even though I'm, not, I'm rusty on the reference, boy, I know that verse. Because when I was your age, after I got done studying, where I went to school, we had to study until 10 p.m. And so 7 to 10, you know, and we studied. Those were the old days. And at 10 o'clock, we could get out, and I would go out, and I would do my laps and everything and run, and, and I would always do back campus, this 260-acre campus, and I would do the back road where it was so dark and the stars were all there, because I didn't want anybody to see me. It was kind of embarrassing. And I would, you know, jog my laps, and when it was time to get back to the dorm, I would pause in my favorite spot where I could see the whole sky, and I would say out loud, I know you're looking. The eyes of the Lord are running to and fro throughout the whole earth, and I want you to know that my heart is, I'm here, and I want to do whatever you want me to do. Now, I didn't want anybody to see me. They'd think I was crazy, kind of like the lady on the subway in London that was raising her hand with her ear, earbuds in, you know, and reaching out to God. But I wanted him to know that as his eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth, here's one. As David said, with my whole heart, I seek you. So, Jesus keeps his word. God the Father is watching over his word. Now look at verse 15. Jesus knows our loyalty to him. He knows whether we're floating in our canoe down the river of life and no longer resisting the current or not. And that's what they were doing. They were floating. And I've already explained that to you. By the way, the Laodiceans had every advantage but they were so focused on everything that didn't matter that they could no longer see the one thing that did matter. Have you ever seen what spelunkers, you know, cave explorers find? Uh, like National Geographic. I used to love reading National Geographic. Actually, I looked at all the pictures. It was so much fun. When they go down into the depths of the caverns, you know, these hundreds of miles of rivers underwater and everything else, they find these curious creatures that have been in the dark so long that their eyes are sightless. They actually have, have skin that's grown over their eyes. And the scientists have looked. They still have optic nerves. They have everything there. It's just they haven't been exposed to the light for so long that to see the optic nerve needs optics, it needs light, but they're with no light. And so the, the, the adaptation, the protective genetic code that God built into all animals has enough stuff to get them in any kind of weather. They can move. That's why creation is so amazing. God put into the DNA enough for all these different variations. And those things, those salamanders, their eyes grow skin over them so that nothing gets in them as they're bumping around underground. 
That's the picture. Remember, I think in pictures. That's how the Laodiceans look. They had not been exposed to the light for so long, they had lost sight of seeing God. And it made him sick. Wow. Rather, by the way, what does hot or cold and lukewarm mean? Well, to me it means, well, what did it mean geographically back then? See, that's what's most important. That's why this is expositional. Did you know if you lived in Laodicea, it was a very wealthy town, and I could talk all about it, their crops, you know, they raised black sheep, and they had the best black glossy wool, kind of famous Paris fashions, we would call it today. They had gold mines, so gold was big. They also were the Mayo Clinic of the ancient world. They had the ophthalmological, that's eye disease, highest treatment center in the world. They produced the only ophthalmic medicine in the ancient world, and it was in demand. If you knew anything about the ancient world, when you walked around and all the dust got in your eyes, people had a lot of eye diseases, and they had the cure. So the three things that they were really good at, gold and eyes and clothes, Jesus addresses. But what about the cold, lukewarm? What is that? Laodicea had a problem. They didn't have natural resource of water. But they had, every, they had the gold and everything else. And so what they did is the Romans built aqueducts. Remember I told you they built them hundreds of miles long. And they built an aqueduct one way to Colossae, like Colossians. And they built another aqueduct the other way to Hierapolis. And it was almost like the C and the H on the faucets. Colossae had these incredible, cold, fresh, kind of like Aquafina springs. And so they had like like. Perrier water coming in an aqueduct for about 20 miles from Colossi Springs, and they had this super hot, healthy spa water coming from Heropolis. And if you go to Heropolis today, it looks kind of like Yellowstone, you know, all those pools of bubbling water. So they were pumping in the hot spa water from Heropolis, and they were, you know, pumping in the, the Perrier water from Colossi. But when it got to Laodicea, it was no longer hot. It was no longer cold. It all arrived after chugging along 20 miles of aqueducts to be lukewarm. You know what's interesting? I've heard so many different messages on, God wants you hot or cold. God wants you cold. That's a curious thought. God? Aren't you cold? Which would mean like a Sardis person, dead, you know? Which would mean like a Thyatiran, you know, or a Pergamite with Jezebel's immorality. Is that what you mean? No. But they can't figure out it's the opposite of hot, right? We want to be hot, right? That's the positive one? No. Neither one are positive. God wants us, if we're refreshing, fresh, pure water to be that. Not this not cold anymore kind of stale stuff. Or if we're bubbly, hot, spa, cleansing, renewing, you know, hot water, he wants us to be that. Not this. I mean, when spa water gets lukewarm, it smells kind of like volcanic sulfur smell. You know what I mean? We don't want to be We don't want to be hot or cold, sorry. I forgot to turn off my watch. And it was ringing. 
and I didn't want them to talk to you, so I turned it off. God says, either be like the hot Heropolis water and, and, and bathe people with, with you know, helping them to be restored back to what they're supposed to be, or be like Colossae and refresh people, but I don't want you just being neutral in the middle. And yet, that's what Christians have become. And we can sicken Christ for a while. Jesus wants us to obey and serve him and be either hot or cold. Or if we're neither, it makes him sick. But what was the problem? What caused this condition? Okay, look at chapter 3 and verse 17. Because you say, I am rich. Hey, look up. Think about it. What is the goal? What is the American dream? The American dream is come here and you can accomplish anything. You can be anything. You can... You can start your own business. You can become a TikToker and make you know millions like that one girl does, more than any of the corporate executives. You know you can do anything in America. That's the American dream. And you don't just do it. You save it so that you can retire like at 50-something and, and live in a big house, go out to eat all the time, have new cars, and if you're a man, play golf, and if you're a woman, I don't know, have perfect hair and nails and tan and... and and everything else. I don't know what the American dream is for women, but it's there. They had the American dream. Look at verse 17. You are rich. You are not just rich, you're wealthy. You're not just wealthy, you're self-sufficient. You don't need anything. And do not know that as I see you, Jesus said, I just visited your church. You, in my sight, are wretched. God, the Son, the Savior, who shed his blood for these people, looked at them and said, you're wretched. Wow. Miserable. Poor. Blind. Naked. Hmm. I wrote down, riches can be toxic. Jesus said riches can be deadly to our spiritual lives because we can come to the point where we don't need anything. Do you remember what the Lord's Prayer is? Do all of you know the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, right? right? What's the middle petition? Give us this day what? Our what bread? What's the word before bread? Daily? Are you kidding? Who wants to need God to help me make it through today? I want to save up enough money that I have years of bread. I have enough socked away that no one can order me around. I want to have my own business. I want financial independence. I want to be self-sufficient. And God told us every time we pray, we're supposed to focus on him as our Father which art in heaven and say, I want to bow before you, hallow your name. I want to submit to you for your kingdom to come. And I want to follow you so that your will is done in my life like it is in heaven. And then we get to the middle, which says, give us this day. And I am supposed to say, Lord, I want you to supply me what I need to make it through this day. So that I can declare that you are good and faithful and able. And I want you to supply me. And these people said, uh-uh, uh-uh. We're, we're consuming our lives to be rich, wealthy, and not need anything. Did you know in America, none of us want to be this way. But we learn to look down on people that have less 
we think they don't work as hard, they don't try as hard, they haven't studied as much. You know, in America, well, it's not just it's just humanity. We look down when we think we're better. What is the measure of better? Well, look at our programming. Uh, yesterday, Bloomberg announced that there are 877,000 different episodic, uh, I mean, sessions of all the shows on Netflix, Hulu, Prime, and Disney. Those four have 877,000 movies and episodes of, of series. If you look at them and people analyze them, do you know what people love to watch? The lives of the rich and famous, the houses of the rich and famous, the bodies of the rich and famous, you know, the hair of the rich and famous. And, and it's just like, oh, you know, if whoever is going to start a company, goop, you know, or whatever, if they're famous, we want it. You know, it's just amazing. See, what we do is we, we measure people just like they did in the book of James. Do you remember when you studied James? If they're coming to your assembly, a poor man in vile raiment, the word rufa in Greek means smelly, street person. And there come also a rich man with a gold ring. And you say to the rich man, sit here in the front, and to the smelly one, stay in the back. Have you not become respecters of persons? I mean, this has been the original problem in the church, that we look up to rich people, we think there's something inherently better about them because they're rich. And we think of homeless people as there's something inherently wrong with them because they don't work hard enough or whatever they don't do. And they just ought to pull up their bootstraps and get going. Now, there are a lot of lazy people. And God already said, if you will not work, you will not eat. I mean, already God has settled all this. But what Jesus said that we should pay attention to is riches can be toxic. Why? Because we start wanting our... In fact, I like Randy Elkhorn, one of my favorite authors. He wrote a lot of good books. But, but in one of his good books, he wrote about this. He said, most people, this is the earth, this is heaven. And he says, they're backing toward heaven like this. And they're, they're, they don't want to let go of all their treasures on earth. And so they don't want to go to heaven. They're scared to die. They're the tractor beam. It's kind of like Star Wars God's tractoring them toward heaven, and they don't want to let go of earth. That's how dangerous riches are. Wow. They can be deadly to our spiritual lives. We come to the point where we don't need anything, and God wants us to ask him to supply us. Uh, look real quickly at 1 Timothy 6. If you've never seen this, Paul gives a theology of wealth in 1 Timothy 6, and what he says is this. Um, Let's see, number one, uh, verse six. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Lesson number one, things are always temporary. Everything you see around you is gonna burn up. And there's only one thing you can take with you to heaven, people. And there's only one thing you can do with your treasures, send them ahead. If they stay here, they're toast. And having food, verse 8, and clothing, with these to be content, only seek necessities, wait for the rest. Well, that would solve a lot of people's problems. Don't go into debt to buy a depreciating asset. And be careful about buying an appreciating one if you're sure it depreciates. 
you know, Bonnie and I got married, and we went out to serve with John MacArthur Grace Community Church, and we slept in the basement on a single mattress with no box springs under it in the floor of a Christian's basement that let us stay there until we could, for three months, save up enough money to have first, last, and whatever. You know, you have to have first month, last month, and security deposit to, to rent in California, and rents were astronomical back then. So it was like $2,000 we needed in 1984. And so we lived in the basement, and these gracious Christians let us live down there with the spiders and the cockroaches and the mold and everything else. But it was wonderful because we saved up enough money to have rent. Then we got our first apartment. We had not a stick of furniture. Yet all of our friends that went to school with us were sending you know, their pictures, and they all had everything. Why? Because instantly they started borrowing money. You know, you're going to that financial, I hope you go to the financial thing. We all, you all, we all need to know more about how to be disciplined in our finances, but you know the simplest thing you need to learn is spend less every month than you earn. Spend less every month than you earn. That's what the Bible says. It says cut your portion into seven and don't, don't use it all up. Save, uh, live on less than you earn. And so what you do is you lower your purchases down to your earnings rather than to what you can borrow and make payments on because you become a servant to the one that you borrow from. So then he continues. Look at verse 10 of 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For some have strayed from the faith, Paul says, in their greediness, and they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You know what he's saying? Avoid a consuming desire for riches. Why? Because it'll pierce you. Do you know what we're supposed to learn to be? Content. Paul was content. He says, I'm around senators of the Roman Empire. He was. He lists them off in Romans 16. And he also palled around with slaves. How do I know that? He named them. Do you know how you know they're a slave? Do you know how they named slaves in the first century? They named them by their birth order. One, two, three, or four. So when Paul says, Tertius, my friend, do you know what Tertius means? Three. He was the third born of a slave family. And Quartus, my brother, what does Quartus mean? Paul palled around with senators, that's the highest, highest crust, and with slaves, that's the lowest, and the socioeconomic spectrum. Avoid a consuming desire for riches. Don't think that if you had more, you'd be happier because you wouldn't be. God already told us that. And then look what it says, verse 12. Oh, well, I'll start in 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness. Flee what things? Materialism. Riches are toxic. Everyone says, oh, I'll just earn more so I can give more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really hard to do. You remember Wesley, Charles Wesley, John Wesley, the Wesley brothers, the ones that wrote all those hymns and started Methodism and all that? They were incredible servants of the Lord. When, they, when Charles Wesley started out, he earned uh, 10 pounds, British pounds, a year. He lived on three pounds a year, and gave away seven. At the end of his life, he earned a thousand pounds a year. And he said in his journal that he lived on 300 and gave away 700. You know what he did? He never changed the proportion. He said, I'm going to be sacrificial. I'm going to live on the least amount so that I can expand the kingdom the most. Do you know what most people do? 
they earn 10, they spend 15, and they pay monthly payments on it. And if they earn 1,000, they'll spend 5,000 and pay monthly. The goal is to be bigger, higher, better, newer, whatever. Flee materialism and look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. Cling to eternal life, not temporary toxic riches. And look at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this world not to be haughty, nor trust in uncertain riches. Uncertain riches. Remember how crypto went down a trillion or two and all those people that borrowed money to buy crypto, you know, had a headache? Pin your hope on God, not on riches. And finally, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, verse 18, ready to give and willing to share. That's Paul's philosophy in 1 Timothy 6 on finances. Do you know what he said? Give until it hurts. Give so much that it hurts you to give. So these people were not hot. They weren't cold. They were lukewarm. What it meant is they were going along, avoiding the really big sins and living the American dream. That's what Laodicea was. And it made the Lord sick. When we don't pursue Christ, when we float, when we're not paddling. See, everybody is floating along thinking that bigger is better and more is better and and that the goal in life is to be the most desirable kind of knockout-looking person. And we're supposed to be pilgrims and strangers paddling against the current, bumping into people, and helping Jesus turn their canoes around. And it takes our focus rather than going along with the flow. But when we don't do that, when we float, we can become miserable. And we blame all our problems on other things rather than it being our own alienation from Jesus. Remember, he starts resisting us. We can become poor in God's wealth because we're only measuring wealth by worldly standards. We become blind because we're not exposed to the light. We're not even interested in the Bible and our eyes get blinded. We become naked. Wow. Remember what salvation does? One of my favorite verses that I've memorized is this one. This gives the seven effects of salvation. Acts 26, 18. It says this. This is Jesus talking to Paul on the road to Damascus. To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them that are sanctified by faith in me. Look, look what that is. To open their eyes. That's what happened when we got saved. We were turned away from darkness. Our canoe got turned around. Instead of heading toward the dark, we want to head toward the light the light of the world. From the power of Satan, the shackles were removed. We received forgiveness of sins. Jesus said, I've been punished in your place. And so you have an inheritance that way. And so instead of going like this to heaven, like Randy Alcorn says, turn around and say, this world is not my home. I want to go this way. I want to send all I can ahead. I want to take as many people with me as possible to heaven. Among those who are sanctified. What does sanctification mean? Remember I told you about ten times? It means to be useful to God. Salvation is God's lifelong desire to make us more and more and more useful. We call that progressive sanctification. And it's all by faith. And if it wasn't so late, I would tell you about William Borden. You know, you should be reading all these great heroes of the past. William Borden... His family owned the dairy company that's up here in the East Coast. I mean, they don't own it anymore. But William Borden was the heir of, of vast mega riches. And he 
died on his way to the mission field. He was in Cairo learning Arabic so he could reach the darkest, unreached people groups of the world. And his mother rushed to his bedside and got there hours after he died. And this is what it said. It said, when she got to the little dark room in Cairo where his body was laying on the bed, as the people hovered around, they found his Bible on the nightstand. She opened it to the back flyleaf, and this is what she found. No reserves, no retreat, no regret. Wow. What he said is, I gave away my Borden milk fortune, no reserves. I went to learn the language of the least reached people group and got some horrible disease in Cairo. And, and as he lay dying of a fever, he wrote in his Bible, no regrets, because he said, the one whose eyes are running to and fro throughout the whole earth watching me knows that my heart was completely toward him. You see, God doesn't measure how much we do. Don't try and do more than anybody's ever done. Just try and give more and more and more of yourself, your heart, your life, your desires to the Lord. And what did Peter write to these people? To the very people Jesus is writing to, look what Peter wrote in 2 Peter. You know, I love knowing what these people heard. Can you imagine Peter coming to your church and look at 2 Peter 1, verse 8. For if these things are yours, these truths, if you embrace them, if you can't get enough of them, if you surrender to them, if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. But he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Wow. Therefore, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble. And an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. How did Peter make it to the end and die crucified upside down? How did he do it? He was looking forward to the abundant entrance into the presence of the infinite, eternal God. Everything in this world is passing away. Everybody's going to die. Everything's going to wear out. You know what I mean? It's all going to burn up. He, his canoe was headed that way. You know, a way to apply that? At your age, I used to make all these Little choices when I was your age. And next week, I'll get into, you know, one of the sessions I do, the 10 best decisions I ever made in my life, just to show you how little choices impact you, um, and other things like that. Well, I'll just tell you one of them. Make a sacred vow to refocus on God. Read God's word before your social media, any online activities, or anything else as you start your day. And by the way, when I say start your day, it depends on when you start your day. God starts his day at night. In the Bible, it says in Genesis that Mark Strout, I think, teaches, and the evening and the morning were the first day. When God reckons time, he starts at night. So when you and I are going to bed unconscious, unable to keep ourselves awake, defenseless, you know, God starts the day. And when we wake up in the morning, he's already done half of the day. And he asks us to check in with him and say, what do you got going and how can I be a part of it? So it doesn't matter how your day starts at night or in the morning. Seek God first. 
Why? Well, Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye after you check, you know, all of your tweets and pokes and snaps and I don't even know what the new ones are, ticks. Um, you know, after you do all that, if you have enough time, you get to God? Mm-mm. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. You know, Martin Luther used to say that's the terrible petition of the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. He said it's terrible, Martin Luther said, to invite God to run your life, what he might do with you. It's terribly wonderful. It's sobering. Okay, what else can we learn? The only source of true and enduring wealth. Christ says in verse 18, if you go back uh, to chapter 3, verse 18, I counsel you, Jesus said, you want me to be your counselor, your financial counselor? You know, the rich and the wealthy have two things. They have personal trainers, like we saw in chapter 1. Jesus wants to be our coach, our personal trainer. Now he wants to be our financial advisor. So he wants to not only do our physical health, our financial health he wants to do too. And look what he says. I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. White garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that, that you may see. Whoa, did you catch what I just read? What were the three industries of Laodicea if we were having a quiz? Can any of you remember? Yeah, the black, well, gold, yeah, gold mine, the black sheep, wool, and what else? The eye salve. Yeah, I love it that, that you're listening. Jesus targets the three things their city was famous for. You know, it's kind of like um, if someone is speaking and they say something familiar to you, you perk up like, what? That's my hometown or what? You know, I like that kind of food. You know, whatever, you, you know, it's just you light up when you hear something. Jesus was talking their language. He says, to you that are in the gold capital of Asia Minor, why don't you get your gold from me? You who live where the most expensive woolen garments are produced in the whole world, why don't you buy white garments from me? He said, you're in the garment-carrying culture. I give the best garments. And you are blind. Why don't you get my eye set? See, it's so amazing. Jesus calls them. To walk with him in the light of obedience, wearing white garments, walking cleansed, set free from sins and enslavements. Only Jesus can fix our eyes. You know, if you don't get anything out of the Bible, it's not the Bible that has nothing in it. It's that you haven't been exposed to the light and your eyes are getting skin open. And so what you have to do is not try harder, just say, I want to find something in the Bible. It's just to go to Jesus and let him put his eye salve on. Say, you know what? Helen Lemmel, 100 years ago, 1922, wrote a hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Well, what happens if we don't? Look at verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Look what I wrote. True children of God get spanked by Christ. I already told you about that in Hebrews 12. Now think about it. When the great physician examines my life, am I going to be like Ephesus? Is he going to find a spiritual heart condition like the silent killer 
that was in Ephesus, they were, their arteries were carotted, they were hardened, they were full of everything but him. They didn't love him most anymore. Are we going to be like Pergamus? Will he find my spiritual immunity compromised like Thyatira? Will raging infection be in my life with, with all that sin around and that false teacher? And, or like Sardis? Is he going to find me in spiritual cardiac arrest, devoured by the devil? Is Jesus going to check my eyes and shine the light in and my eyes are sightless? Do you know what changes our life? Verse 20. And remember, the goal is not just to make it through Word of Life Bible Institute and go right on to whatever. You know, it's so interesting. I love asking you all, what are you going to do with your life? And all of you have different, you know, uh, I'm going to, you know, uh, work at an orphanage or write movie scripts or I'm going to, you know, all these, I mean, I've I've heard so many wonderful things. Do you know, do you know what the simple answer is? I'm going to serve the Lord the rest of my life. Not sure exactly where, not sure exactly how, but I do know this. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to show up every day, every night, whatever, and say, I'm checking in. With my whole heart I seek you. Your eyes are looking. What do you want to do with my life? Now, he will let us know. Boy, nobody wants you to do what God's will more than God. <laughs> and so he's going to design you a certain way and, and, and build in. And, and usually he gives us the desires of our heart. If you're walking with the Lord, whatever it is you want to do is probably the Lord's will. It's very exciting. It's very liberating. We do everything we want to do because we don't want to do anything except his will. And like Jesus, we came to do your will, O God. But look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door every day. Jesus is at your bunk. Hey, I'd like to spend some time with you. I'd like you to look me right in the eye. I'd like you to focus on me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Now, I know that's used a lot as a salvation invitation, but it is so much more than Jesus knocking on everybody's heart's door. Don't leave it as a salvation invitation. Or make it the real salvation invitation. Salvation is not a one-time event sometime in the past that has nothing to do with what's going on in my life today. Salvation event is the beginning of following him. Remember, Jesus reduced the whole gospel call of his disciples down to two words, follow me. Either you are or you're not. How do we know? I will come in and dine with him and he with me. You can tell your spiritual health today by how important your Bible is to you. Can you not wait to discover something else? And Bow before him and ask him to bring that to pass in your life. Jesus waits every day for our response to his knocking the door of our life. He seeks our fellowship. He wants to feed us. He longs to have our attention. So just before we go, we have five minutes. Let me ask you a quick quick question, okay? Do you live like you're part of what Christ called you to be, the special forces he's deployed behind the enemy lines? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into the God of this world's kingdom. And the gates of hell will not withstand against you. You can go in behind enemy lines and start rescuing people. That's the Great Commission, okay? Now, 
Imagine today you're a special force soldier, invited to your final briefing before you go into active duty. Today you're being sent to patrol on foot through Afghanistan's Taliban-controlled territory. Now there's a lot of American history in that. You know there's going to be along every step of your patrol snipers, landmines, kind of like being over in the Ukraine, remote-controlled IEDs, RPGs, 50 caliber machine gun nests, and thousands of terrorists, plus scorching heat that's going to kill you anyway. The commanding officers give them the last words before they deploy you. They're going to drop you, you know. You're, you're getting your gear and you're, they're going to drop you to parachute down into enemy territory. And before you go, the commanding officer has already led this patrol hundreds of times. And he is the only one who's ever made it back unscathed by the enemy. Okay? So you're in the briefing. He gives you his personally written field manual on battlefield survival. He will explain it, plus the key elements of the body armor. The Christian's armor, you know, Ephesians 6, will be shown, explained, and fitted. And also, he gives the only offensive weapon that will be demonstrated, how this ammunition is used. Remember, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. While wouldn't every one of us be deployed in the front row, we'd be taking notes. We'd stay after asking the commanding officer questions. We'd help each other as the soldiers geared up, and we'd work together for our mutual survival. We'd say, wow, now we know how to survive. Yet today, most of the special forces, that's us as believers, deployed by the Lord, we have the Great Commission, into the harsh territory of Satan, the master terrorist, who's the god of this world, are riding around like they're on vacation. They're like sitting ducks. They ride in these open seats atop a double-decker tour bus, driving through enemy territory. They're living on earth like we're all here just to, you know, go to movies and play games and buy shoes, you know, and, and have good white teeth and nice complexion, you know. There's no daily preparation, prayer without ceasing. There's no body armor taking on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6 says. There's no attending at the briefings. Do you know, we're all supposed to be gathering together and having people going around and checking whether everything's connected and, and how we're doing spiritually. There's no ammunition. We're supposed to live by every word of God. There are no weapons in sight. You know, we're called to face our adversary, the devil, who is a roaring lion, and the number of verses you have is very, very proportionate to how long your sword is because our verse memorization is like the sword of the Spirit. And here we have this massive, devouring beast that's consuming people, and we're supposed to go out, and you ask most people how many verses this moment they know by heart that they can say in, out, forward, backward, and ready at a moment, and you say, do you have 100 verses down? Most people say, well, how about 50? Do you have 25? Do you know what most people are doing? They're facing our adversary, the devil, with a thumbtack. Do you know what a thumbtack is? It's a little round piece of metal with a tiny, short, pointed thing on the end that you push into a bulletin board, that's the sword of the spirit of most Christians. They have a couple of verses that they know well enough that they're going to the lion. Wow. The daily casualties are horrific, as you can imagine. There are many wounded Christian soldiers strewn along the road. Most of them have flaming darts burning in their unprotected lives. Most of them are incapacitated, no longer on the mission. Only a few seem to be at the briefings. And that's what Jesus found when he visited the seven outposts, his churches. 
Are you obeying Christ's last command as church, or are you riding the tour bus? No matter how many steps you take away from God, it's always just one step back.